Hello, everybody. I wanted to say two things before I start. The first is that um, we're going to be addressing or considering a very high matter here today, or very deep, depending on which way you look at it. And um, I just wanted to suggest that it might be better to listen with open heart rather than with the mind, have correlation, correlation afterwards. But this is, this is such a precious matter that is to be conveyed. Really what I've done is to try to string pearls together. Uh, pearls from my stack heart and a uh, little bit longer thread at the beginning but most of it is pearls. And I'm afraid I'm not immersed enough in my stack heart to, to speak so I'm going to have to read but I'll read as much as I can as if I was speaking. So, so my stack heart was a Dominican and I'm going to talk about what both of those words suggest in a bit. He was born in the town of Hochheim in the middle of what is now Germany. Uh, it wasn't Germany then, it was a lot of separate states. He was born in 1260 AD, which is about 20 years after Ibn Arabi died and about 13 years before Jalaluddin Rumi was also died. So that places him in, in time. He died in about 1328, probably, and I say probably because nobody knows, probably on his way home from Avignon in Provence, in France, where he had been undergoing investigation by the papacy for heresy, against charges of heresy. No one knows where he was buried or where he died. He returned to his lord unmarked and without trace. His life was spent in study, in prayer and work. He gained his academic degrees from the Studium Generale in Cologne, which is a university founded by St. Albert, Albertus Magnus, who was called in his time the Dr. Maximus, which is, means the same as Sheikh al and who he may have been Meisterkart may have been taught by him early in his life. He refers to him often. And he was also studied in Paris, the University of Paris, one of the great centres of learning of the time. And he later taught at both those universities. He was a priest, a Christian priest, Catholic priest. And he was the provincial head of the Dominican order in two big regions of Germany which meant that he had a huge administrative and management responsibility. You know, he, he wasn't just a recluse. He really had to be engaged in the world. He would have walked when he, on his, in his work. He would have walked everywhere, occasionally horseback, mostly walking, and he would have walked all over Germany, all the way to Paris and to Avignon. Let me just think this, the vast distances he had to walk 
Meister or Master was his title. And it was applied to him after he took his master's degree in Paris. No one really knows his name. uh, It might have been Johannes Eckhart von Hochheim, but he's always been known simply as Meister Eckhart. Master Eckhart. He was a saint, a mystic, a Gnostic, a Wali. And you can see that from reading his, what he says. He wrote from one singular point in everything, from the heart of his servanthood, based on knowledge and on the fullest adab, fullest of proper response, in the face of opening up of knowledge at any moment. His writings display the most beautiful and limpid logic and clarity. He's thoroughly familiar with the concepts and references of contemporaries and of Greek thinking, which would then fairly recently been introduced to the West from the Muslim world. And he completely submits to the rigour of intellectual discipline, but this is not what he was. It was like an adjective of him, if you like. His fundamental starting point and ending point to repeat is complete servanthood. And it's important to understand that because otherwise you'll think you're looking at a a body of ideas or a point of view or one set of ideas among others. And this is not like that. Real knowledge, this is what he said, not actually his words yet, but is what he said. Real knowledge can only arise in the pure and empty recess of the totally receptive heart that allows no adjective or presupposition to impose on the purity of revelation, but responds to it completely as it comes and as it is, according to its pleasure and its intention. In other words, where the heart conforms completely and is defined by the revelation itself. Eckhart was a friar, not a monk. And that uh, is a significant difference. Monks live enclosed lives in seclusion from the world. Their service, and I'm talking about the best of monks now, not, you know, not maybe the common run, but the best, the best examples. Their service is through the interior, through prayer and through self-abnegation. They know that a movement in the heart of one who faces God has no location and therefore its effects are not limited by time or place. So even though they're cut off and hidden from the world, They work for the world as much as for their own souls. They have no problem with self-knowledge and global responsibility. But friars are a different mode. Excuse me. They also take upon themselves the rigours of abstention. You've already studied something of this in the chapter on Jacob in the Fasus. But the friars do not live in seclusion. Their work is actively in the world. In fact, the Dominican order, to which Eckhart belonged, is also known as the order of preachers. 
They are for exposition and for explanation and for the expansion of knowledge of the religion through preaching. They would travel around, subsisting on charity and preaching wherever they could find an audience, in churches, in markets, in the fields, wherever. That is why Eckhart's core teaching is in the form of sermons, which are the fundamental form of expression of the prayers. A sermon, for those who don't know, is a, uh, it's an address which is based on usually a, a line from scripture or a line from one of, one of the, the fathers or something from tradition. It would be the, the sentence or the line and then talking from it. Central to all that Eckhart says is that only God is. There is nothing else in existence than him. In fact, one of the expressions, one of his expressions that the officials of the church had a problem with was, uh, he said, all creatures are pure nothing. (coughs) They do not say that they are little something or anything at all, but they are pure nothing. In Sermon 19, no order sort of number, but here they are. In Sermon 19, he comments on the text from the Acts of the Apostles, which is the third book, fourth book of the fifth book of the New Testament. And it's a comment on when St. Paul was approaching Damascus and he was suddenly saw blinding light, literally blinding light, and collapsed on the, on the ground in the face of it. And the, the statement about it was, after he'd seen the light, he said, Paul rose from the ground and with open eyes saw nothing. Which is always taken as he just he was blinded by the light. But Meister Eckhart explains this and he says, I think this text has a fourfold sense. There's four meanings to this text. One is that when he rose up from the ground with open eyes, he saw no thing, and the no thing was God. For when he saw God, he calls that no thing. The second, when he got up, he saw nothing but God. The third, in all things he saw nothing but God. The fourth, when he saw God, he saw all things as nothing. Very reminiscent of the last end of the kernel of the kernel. And wherever you look, see that beautiful God. In his sermons, Eckhart is inviting his audience to the truth through clarification. Of course, in what he says, a metaphysic is implied and assumed. This is the metaphysic of absolute unity of being. God is and there is not with him a thing. It's also very important for us to understand here the spiritual ground of what Eckhart in so many different ways is pointing to, telling us about, conjoling us to see and inviting us to know. The core matter, core matter of Eckhart's exposition 
is the birth of God in the soul. As he puts it. And it's still shocking to hear in some ears. Remember he had to use the language of his culture and this is Christian language. Naturally birth in this sense is metaphorical. When Eckhart talks of the birth of God in the soul it is, in, it is the same as being brought to realisation to arrival at truth. It's the same as dying before you die. It's the same as union. And I was thinking just before coming down about the, the Christian Trinity and, and, and its meaning in the sense that Eckhart uses it. And I, I don't know whether this is right, but um, this is how it felt to me reading about it. That when he speaks of the Father, God the Father, he's speaking of the, the inclination of sheer beauty towards extension without extension. Speaking of the one in that that, that way, that movement, that that disposition. When he talks about the sun, he's talking about the perfect man, the complete image, the total self-reflection of the being of itself to itself. When he's talking about the Holy Ghost, he's talking about love. He actually says the Holy Ghost is love, and. To me, it seems I, I can't see it as other than Nafsa Rahman. Means it means that it's that which it, which is the, the essence of everything which is, is manifest, everything which is expressed it's from his his essential being. He imposed on himself the Nafsa Rahman. Sermon one in the translated collection of the other sermons explains this beautifully it's a most extraordinary sermon and the text remember I said that every sermon is commentary on a, on a text the text that he addresses is when all things lay in the midst of silence then there descended down into me from on high from the royal throne a secret word When all things lay in the midst of silence, then there descended down into me from on high, from the royal throne, a secret word. This sermon is about that word, he says. He explains that this birth can only take place in the purest, loftiest, subtlest part that the soul is capable of. And when he says capable of, he doesn't mean able to achieve or graspable. He means it's, its ultimate capacity, its most complete capacity, what it's designed for, like what it's intended for. Therefore, the soul in which this birth, this union, is to take place must keep absolutely pure and must live in noble fashion quite collected and turned entirely inward, not running out through the five senses into the multiplicity of creatures, but all interned and collected in the purest part. There is his place. He disdains anything less. 
This is when you have attached yourself entirely to him and died to your imagined self. It is where the lover knows for certain that love is returned for love and not for any other consideration. This is no denial of the world that is important because all the universes are contained in this. But as we know, even if the whole of manifestation were contained in a corner of the heart of the perfect saint, he would not be aware of it. He wouldn't even feel it. As Eckhart said, that love with which we love must be so pure, so bare, so detached, that it is not inclined towards myself, nor towards my friend, nor anywhere apart from itself. It's important to see that this cannot be denial of the world, because if you deny anything, you give it existence, by qualifying it with denial. This is complete facing of him, and only him, in his absolute unity, according to praise your Lord beyond that which they qualify him with. Turning to him alone. Not turning away from anything, though sometimes the language sounds as if, it's, as if it is saying that. From Sermon 18 he says, People imagine that they have more if they have things together with God than if they have God without things. That is wrong, he says, for all things with God are no more than God alone. Then Eckhart goes on to explain the quality or nature of receptivity that the soul must adopt for this birth, this union, this receptivity. One should shun and free oneself from all thoughts, words and deeds and from all images created by the understanding, maintaining a wholly God-receptive attitude such that one's own self is idle, letting God work within one. And remember, this is not denial, it's complete facing of the essential. Quite a good um, instruction for meditation also. He says that the silence in which the secret word is spoken is in the purest thing that the soul is capable of, in the noblest part, the ground, indeed in the very essence of the soul, which is the soul's most secret part. This, there is the silent middle, centre, middle. For no creature ever entered there, and no image, nor has the soul there any activity or understanding. Therefore, she is not aware there of any image, whether of herself or of any other creature. Everything in the life of the lover needs to be directed towards this point. Nothing real happens before death, before dying. After that, as Ibn Arabi explains in the Colonel of the Colonel, real education happens. Education in taste. Then he explains how whatever the soul effects, she effects 
through her powers, she understands through the intellect, remembers through the memory, loves through the will. Love is intentional. That's why it's through the will. And so on. Every external act is through some means. There must be something to do it through. The power of sight is through the eyes, without which the soul cannot see. And so on with the other faculties. All of which Eckhart calls powers of the soul. But in the soul's essence, there is no activity. For the powers she works with emanate from, they come out of the ground of being. Yet in that ground is the silent middle. Here, nothing but rest and celebration for this birth, this act, that God the Father may speak his word there. For this part, this part, is by nature receptive to nothing save only the divine essence, without mediation. Here, here, God enters the soul with his all, not merely with a part. Here, God enters the soul with his all, not merely with a part. God enters here the ground of the soul, None can touch the ground of the soul but God alone. <coughs> and uh, what of this soul he's speaking of? And what he says here actually is, is our experience if we could but see it here and now in terms of the activities explains how the soul knows other creatures at whatever level by receiving an image of that thing and then approaching it and knowing it through the image that has been voluntarily, voluntarily taken in through the faculties. Now that includes things and thoughts and every possible image taken in and then considered and that's how it's possible to be a guardian of the heart. How the, you know, because everything that occurs is, is, is received and the awake, alert guardian what isn't appropriate is rejected and so on what is, what is proper is accepted and through this presented image the soul approaches creatures in other words we delineate our interior consciousness in our interior consciousness, consciousness a model an image of what we seek to know is mediated through, to us through our senses then we work with the image the image says Eckhart can only enter the soul through the powers from outside puts it. but the soul can neither create nor obtain an image of herself so there is nothing so unknown to the soul as herself and so she knows all other things, but not herself. Of nothing does she know so little as of herself for want of mediation. There's no means, there's no nothing, no intermediation by which she can know herself. He says, you must know, you must know that too, that inwardly 
the soul is free and void of all means and of all images, which is why God can freely unite with her without form or likeness. Every instant this is so. And what freedom it offers us. This unknowing is the same as infinite receptivity and this is the height of the soul, the predisposition to receive his vital actas. Then he says that this not knowing makes her, makes the soul wonder and leads her to eager pursuit. For she perceives clearly that it is but does not know how or what it is. This unknown unknowing keeps the soul constant, yet spurs her on, spurs her on to pursuit of her truth, her reality, her essence, her love. He then explains that good and perfected people, and he says these words are addressed to no other, no one else than that, who have so absorbed and assimilated the essences of all virtues that these virtues emanate from them naturally without their seeking. They must know that the very best and noblest attainment in this life is to be silent and let God work and speak within. When the powers have been completely withdrawn from all their works and images, then the word is spoken. He talks about this process of, of, of absorbing the, um, the virtues. It's a bit like learning to write. When you learn to write, you have to practice. You have, you're, you're in relation to the process of learning. But once, once it's learnt fully, then it's completely natural. You don't even, you're not even aware of process. The next quote may also remind you of the kernel of the kernel again. If only you could suddenly become unaware of all things, then you could pass into oblivion of your own body, as St. Paul did when he said, whether in the body I cannot tell, or out of the body I cannot tell. God knows it. In this case, the spirit has so entirely absorbed the powers that it had forgotten the body. Memory no longer functioned, nor understanding, nor the senses. In this way a man should flee his senses, turn his powers inward and sink into oblivion of all things and himself. And so, if God is to speak his word in the soul, she must be at rest and at peace. And then he will speak his word and himself in the soul. No image but himself. My soul dissolved and melted away when love spoke, her, spoke his word. When he entered, I had to fall away. And how should a man be who is to see God. He must be dead. Our Lord says, no man can see me and live. And he's 
definitely talking about die before you die. There. God alone is free and uncreated. And thus he alone is like the soul in freedom. And when she, the soul, emerges into the unmixed light, she falls into nothingness, so far from the created nothing that of her own power she cannot return to her created something. God, with his uncreatedness, upholds her nothingness and preserves her in his something. The soul has dared to become nothing and so cannot of herself return to herself for she has departed so far from herself before God comes to the rescue. Passage read from here. He says, if this work is to be done, God alone must do it. And you must just suffer it to be. Where you truly go out from your will and your knowledge, God with his knowledge surely and willingly goes in and shines there clearly. Where God will thus know himself, there your knowledge cannot subsist. And it is of no avail. Do not imagine that your reason can grow to the knowledge of God. If God is to shine divinely in you, your natural light cannot help towards this end. Instead, it must become pure nothing and go out of itself altogether. And then God can shine in with his light and he will bring back in with him all that you forsook and a thousand times more, together with a new form to contain it all together with a new form to contain it all. <coughs> he says, you should know what a man is like who has come to this. We can well say that he is God and man. Observe, he has gained by grace all that Christ had by nature and that his body is so fully suffused with the noble essence of the soul which she has received from God and the divine light that we may declare that man is divine. Alas, my children, he says, you should pity such people for they are strangers, unknown to anybody. All who ever hope to come to God may well be mistaken in these folk for they are hard for strangers to perceive. None can truly recognise them but those in whom the same light shines. This is the light of truth. It may well be that those who are on the way to the same good but have not yet attained it can recognise these perfect ones of whom we have spoken at least in part. But note, you must pay good heed you always saying things like that. Pay attention. For such people are very hard to recognise. When others fast, they eat. When others watch, they sleep. When others pray, they are silent. In short, all their words and acts are unknown to other people. 
because whatever good people practice while on the way to eternal bliss, all that is quite foreign to such perfect ones. They need absolutely nothing and are in possession of the city of their true birthright. They do more eternal good in one instant than all the outward acts that were ever performed externally. Finally, I'm going to read some beautiful passages from Sermon 19, which is the one where he starts off talking about St. Paul um, seeing nothing with open eyes after being blinded by the light outside Damascus. Much of what he says in what I'm going to read is from the Song of Songs, Song of Solomon, which Eckhart just calls the Song of Love, and from which he quotes, and this is where he starts, he says, from the Song of Songs, In my bed at night I have sought him whom my soul loves and not found him. She sought him in her bed, which means that whoever clings or hangs on to, on to anything less than bed than God, his bed is too narrow. And all that God creates, can create, is too narrow. She says, I sought him all through the night. There is no night that is without light, but it is veiled. The sun shines in the light in the night, but it is hidden from view. By day it shines and eclipses all other lights. So does the light of God. It eclipses all other lights. Whatever we seek in creatures, all that is night. In other words, veiled light. I mean this, he says. Whatever we seek in any creature is but a shadow and is, is night. Even the highest angel's light, exalted though it be, does not illuminate the soul. Whatever is not the first light, whatever is not the first light, is all darkness and night. Therefore, she cannot find God. I arose and sought him all about and ran through the broad ways and the narrow. Then the watchmen, they were the angels, found me, and I asked them if they had seen him whom my soul loves. But they were silent. Perhaps they could not name him. Then she says, When I had passed on a little further, I found him that I sought. The little, the trifle that she missed him by, is a thing I have spoken of before. He to whom all transient beings are not trivial and as nothing will not find God. Hence, she says, having passed on a little further, I found him that I sought. When God takes form in the soul and infuses it, if you then take him as a light or a being or as goodness, if you recognize anything of him, that is not God. See, we have to pass over that little and discard all that is adventitious and know God as one. Adventitious means arising, coming. 
She does not name him whom her soul loves. Refers to him only like that. And there are four reasons, says Eckhart, he likes four reasons for things, why she does not name him. One reason is that God is nameless. Had she given him a name, that would have had to have been imagined. God is above all names. None can get so far as to being able to express him. And this is talking about the, the, the essence, the essential here, the ahadiyya. The second reason is that when the soul swoons away into God with love, she is aware of nothing but love. She thinks that everyone knows, she knows him as she does. She is amazed that anyone should recognize anything but God. The third reason is that she had no time to name him. She cannot turn away from love long enough to utter another word but love. And the fourth is, perhaps she thinks that he has no other name but love. With love, she pronounces all names. This is because, I wanted to read this because of, he's talking about love. And here he says about knowledge. He says knowledge is better than love. But two are better than one, in this case. For knowledge includes love. Love infatuates and entangles us in goodness. And in love, I remain caught up at the, in the gate. And love would be blind if knowledge were not there. A stone also possesses love, and its love seeks the ground. In other words, gravity is love. If I am caught up in goodness, in the first effusion taking him where he is good, then I seize the gate, but I shall not seize God. Therefore knowledge is better, for it leads love. But love seeks desire, intention. Knowledge does not add a single thought, but rather detaches and strips off and runs ahead, touches God naked and grasps him in his essence. And... Um, Finally, to those of us who are still mystified, Meister Eckhart adds a little comment at the end of Sermon 56. Really, what he said and what he, was, what he had to say, there's, it's, there's, you can see there's no um, choice in the matter. It's completely necessary for him to say everything that he said. So at the end he says, whoever has understood this sermon Good luck to him. If no one had been here, I would have had to preach it to this donation box. He says. Thank you. Thank you very much.